On the Monday, the 9th of March, 2009, a painting was unveiled that stunned art collectors all around the world. Gregory Katz wrote about that particular painting, The Bard or Not the Bard. That is the question, he said, posed by Monday's unveiling of a centuries-old portrait of a dark-eyed, handsome man in Elizabethan finery. Experts then said, it's the only painting that we have of William Shakespeare that has been painted during his lifetime. In effect, it's the sole source of our knowledge as to what this great man looked like. But then again, they put in the caveat that we cannot be certain, we're only 90% sure that it's Shakespeare. That was said by Paul Edmondson, who was the director of learning at the Shakespeare Learning Trust. And in turn, he came to be able to exhibit that portrait in Stratford-on-Avon. He said, you'll never be entirely certain. There will always be voices of dissent. And of course, that'll be true. No matter what field we might be operating in, we might have 90% coming in the flume, but there'll always be that 10%, and they'll be picking holes, finding fault, and raising a dispute. Rather incredibly, as far as his portrait was concerned, it had been in private hands for centuries, actually in Ireland in the possession of the Cobb family. But they had no idea, though they had it passed down through the family, that the man in their painting had been responsible for all of these enduring masterpieces such as Shakespeare was. But all of it changed one day when one of the Cobbs walked into the National Portrait Gallery in London's Trafalgar Square. And he saw there that day a traveling exhibit that was entitled Seeking for Shakespeare. One of the first things that caught his eye was this famous portrait of the bard that usually was hanging in the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington. Edmondson said his jaw dropped. He realized, I have one of those at home. And the one that he had at home turned out to be the original Edmondson said the portrait is far superior to all of the copies made after Shakespeare's death, including an engraving that you probably will have seen if in literature in English class you paid any attention whatsoever. You'll have seen an engraved version of Shakespeare dating away back to 1623, and it's on virtually all of his plays. But they're saying about the portrait, this is Shakespeare alive, with fresh blood pumping through his veins, painted in his lifetime. The copies look dead by comparison. When we come, as we have done over the past number of weeks, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we find again a stunning portrait. And you know by now it's a stunning portrait of love. And as we sketch out the various features in the painting that are identified here, it's emerging, coming piece by piece, into a beautiful and a full representation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the key subject in this chapter. He's the original on which it is all Beast. 
and it's alive with fresh blood pumping through his veins, and it's painted, not confined to the duration of his earthly life and his ministry here upon this earth, but it is true of him throughout all eternity as the eternal Son in the bosom of the Father from all eternity right through, since he lives in the part of an endless life, these features of love are true of Christ. But it's not just a matter of gazing at the portrait and seeing a fresh and living embodiment of who our Savior is. He wants us to go further than that. And what he wants us to do is see this portrait reproduced in ourselves. And see, in the church, as we gather together as a body of believers, as we interact in society, he wants to see us a collection of reprints of his image. May it not and never be said of us, as it was said when the original painting of Shakespeare was found, the copies look dead by comparison. May that not be true of me or of you. And as we take some time to study the qualities of the love, Described here in 1 Corinthians 4, the verse 4 through to the verse 7, and we're examining here this portrait of Christ. He is gazing at us to see, is my portrait being repainted? Is it being replicated? Is it being reproduced in those who have taken on my name and called themselves Christians? My representatives in the world. There's no doubt, as John MacArthur has claimed, this chapter is the greatest, most far-reaching, broad description of love that has ever been paid by the Holy Spirit's inspiration. But on the same, it's tremendously and intensely practical, and I think we'll find that out at every step. And then, even though It's a portrait of Jesus Christ, which gives it an exalted character. It is at the same time a shoe-leather presentation of what Christ wants to reproduce in us in our daily living. Whenever man was first made, Garden of Eden, he was created in the image of God. And since God's love was his, by possession there in Eden. Each of his features emphasized in the chapter that we have before us today, each of these features would have been seen in man. Adam would have exhibited these characteristics. But when the fall occurred, then all of that was lost. Once the image of God was marred in us, love was marred, man became essentially loveless, an unsaved, unregenerate man, as well as a Christian functioning in the flesh, is essentially a loveless person. And that's why Paul comes here under the inspiration of God, and he paints in the features of love as to what we should be. So in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 7, we're being reminded again and again as to how love should be 
acting because that's the major driving principle of love. It's one that acts. This portrait provided a stark contrast to the believers in the city and in the church in Corinth. They didn't have love. Their actions were flowing in the opposite direction of love. And so Paul finds it necessary to remind them here and lay out the characteristics and spend time on that to show them how they needed to rectify their lives. The question is, are we better than they? Love is very patient. How many times are we impatient? Love is extremely kind. Many times are we unkind. Love displays no jealousy, but are we not frequently full of envy? Love doesn't parade itself. We can often be proud. Love is never selfish. Are we not sometimes, many times, self-centered? Love is never short-tempered, but we often have a short fuse. And when it's said of us that that's what we have, that's not a very enviable quality. Love is never resentful, but we are too keen to look for wrongs and snubs and slights, and we make mental notes of them, and we're saying in our minds, I'll catch you in the long grass someday. There are further features of love, and we have 15 packed into this little section in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. But I think we have discerned enough already with just last week alone that we need to read these, we need to apply these, we need to add these as features in our portrait so that we will more closely resemble our Lord Jesus Christ. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the feature patience. We looked at kindness. Our love requires us to respond to others in these ways, with patience and with kindness. This morning, we're going to go another two steps on. We've looked at the primacy of love in the first three verses. Then we're in the profile of love here, having seen part of it, the third feature. It's a negative one. Love is not jealous. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. So, love is not jealous. Paul is telling us here that love does not envy. So, we have jealousy here identified. I'm back to Shakespeare just momentarily. Shakespeare writing about envy or jealousy, one and the same thing, he called it the green sickness. And I think you'll get exactly what he was saying. An old Latin proverb, it described it as the enemy of honor. But the best description you will find, you find in the Scriptures of truth. Because Solomon called it, in Proverbs 14 and verse 13, it is rottenness of the bones. And if ever you're afflicted by envy and jealousy, and that goes on and doesn't subside and begins to grow and develop, you will find it's acting as a rottenness of the bones. It's eating away at your frame, and you will be going down and down and down, even though you're attempting by your jealousy to grow bigger and bigger. It is rottenness 
of the bones. And we can view it on two levels. One level is a superficial level. The other is going to be right down deep, down bedrock kind of level. Rotten, stinking jealousy is a way that somebody will no doubt describe it. The superficial level, it's going to be coming along on this kind of a line. I want what you have. You know, that new car. Well, I wish I owned that one. How come he ever got that car? How could he afford a car like that? People see me driving around the neighborhood in my old, battered, rusty car, and they don't think I'm successful. But look at him. He's got a brand new, flashing new one. They view him as a total success. It's not fair. It can be a possession, a talent, a job, a house, a family. It can be appearance. It can even be a spiritual experience. When we envy in that way, we're being unfair. It's not fair that we judge someone simply because they make more money or might have a better deal in genetics than we do. It's unfair to think badly of a person because they have worked harder than we have or they are gifted to a higher degree in some area than we happen to be. It's unfair to look at people and feel that we deserve the blessings they have in our lives and somehow the fact that they're blessed in the degree that they are, that's robbing me, that's cheating me, that's holding me back in some way. And that's only the superficial level. Going deeper, the substantial level of envy, at its worst, it's saying, I wish he didn't have it. When we start diminishing other people's accomplishments, when we rejoice to hear, you know that person doing well, Ah, they're beginning to struggle. And we're thinking, well, that's pretty good. Or when we actually do, when we say things to undermine that other person's success. And at those occasions, we're trying to sabotage the good things that are happening to others. Envy, make no mistake about it, it brings out the worst in us. We are most likely guilty of envy when we find ourselves not able to celebrate with those who have had something good happen in their lives, when we begin to diminish the accomplishments of somebody else, and maybe we're saying, well, you know what? My child would play more football if my dad was the coach. And all our talk is negative, or it's a qualified positive at best, and we're saying, well, He certainly is a nice person, even though he has a hairpiece, or something equivalent which is really a put-down in disguise. We dislike somebody because they're attractive, they're popular, they're successful, even though we have a very hard time admitting that is why we really don't like them. We relish hearing about the fall or failure of someone who has for a time spent their days in the spotlight. And isn't it so good to see them shunted off the stage, time for somebody else, maybe me. We're upset when someone even in the church or in our family seems to be getting more time and more attention 
than we are. I'm going to tell you something. It's easy to be envious. It is so easy to be envious. Prompts us to say things, do things that are strange, but it's something that we can all relate to because we are guilty of it. In the Greek language, the root word for envy means to boil. Take the picture of a kettle. It's that inner boiling, that bubbling up, that seething, that steaming over something that somebody else has. And that's exactly what was happening in this church in Corinth. And so in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 31, Paul is exhorting, think carefully about what he's saying here, but covet earnestly the best gifts. In our English Bible, that's translated as a command. Covet earnestly the best gifts. But it could also be translated to read, but you are coveting the showy gifts. Peter were en- people were envying here in front of Paul's eyes the gifts, the abilities of others. And it's creating conflict and division within the fellowship. And so in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 3, he says, Ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, these all exist together. All of the consequence, one of the other, envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? The fable is told about the devil and the hermit of the desert. While crossing the Libyan desert, according to the story, the devil comes across a cluster of his demons, and they're doing their utmost to get this old hermit and drag him into sin. And the hermit had taken his vows before God. He had said no to everything in the world. He had beaten a path out there into the desert. He was trying his best to live a life that would please God, no doubt vainly, but trying it nonetheless. Those demons tried to involve the hermit there in the sins of the flesh, and they tempted him in every which way they knew, but they had no success. Steadfastly, the old man dug in his heels, true to my voice, I resist all of your suggestions. But eventually, after seeing their failure in disgust, the devil comes along and he whispers to his demons, what you're doing is too crude. Give me one moment. And he went up to the hermit and he whispered in his ear, your brother has just been made the bishop of Alexandria. And a style of malignant jealousy creased the face of that old hermit. That, said the devil to his demons, is the sort of thing I recommend. There's no doubt that if the devil cannot tempt and trap us in one area, he will not be giving up. He will be trying somewhere else. And jealousy is a fertile plan for his attack. There's no better way to test a man like this. Let someone below him, someone that see him level as him, begin to succeed beyond and above him, and check out how that man handles that. Let us think of jealousy illustrated as well here. 
Again, I'm quoting MacArthur. I don't often do, but his words of relevance here. He said, I once started a little Bible study on this and quit after only a few minutes because I realized it could take me a month. As I began to chart the themes that were connected to jealousy, I had a hard time getting out of Genesis. Now, we understand what he means. Think of a few examples. Eve, for one, in Genesis 3 and 5, the first sin mentioned in the Bible is that of jealousy because in that passage, the devil tempts Eve with the idea, wouldn't you like to be like God? And Eve must have been thinking along the lines, well, certainly, sure I would, no doubt about that. Why should he be the only person in this universe who owns the knowledge of good and the knowledge of evil? I don't like being left out of the loop. I want to be like God. Jealousy spawned Eve's sin, and the human race collapsed. What about Cain? Next chapter, Genesis 4. Murder. He's the next sin specified there, and he killed his brother Abel out of envy. Because Abel's offering was so much more acceptable to God, only acceptable to him, and Cain's was not. We don't travel too much further in Genesis to find Joseph and his brothers. Put him into a pit, sell him to slavery in Egypt because we're jealous of the attention, the prominence that our brother Joseph is getting from the hand of his father. Now, those are three prime illustrations of jealousy in the Bible, and yes, we're still in the book of Genesis. Can you imagine how many more we'd come across if we worked on through Exodus and the other 38 books that are in the Old Testament and the 27 in the New? We got right through to the book of Revelation because in the New Testament, let's take a couple of examples there as we pass through, we've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And we know they're working tirelessly and endlessly to undermine the message of Christ, to eventually kill him, dispose of him, because they were envying the response he was getting from the people. Even Pilate could detect their jealousy. And as Christ is on trial before him, Mark 15 and verse 10, we're told that he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. Envy was going to murder again, and it did. Even the disciples of Jesus, that's why we read this passage this morning in Mark chapter 9, the verse 34, they were debating among themselves as to who of them should be recognized as the greatest. They were prepared to scramble over the top of each other to reach the top of the pile. Each of these accounts show us that when envy creeps into our lives, when it takes over, when it penetrates the church, we are often led to do previously unthinkable things. And all through the Bible, we have jealousy snaking the trail of condemnation. Why? Because God is always and ever against it. In both Testaments, He delivers broadsides against jealousy. In the Old, in Proverbs 27 and 4, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? 
James. In the New Testament, chapter 3 and verse 14 to 16, but if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. It could hardly be more plain, could it? What we have here is every evil work that is spawned out of envy and jealousy. How do I deal with it? Well, the answer we find in 1 Corinthians 13, here we see jealousy immobilized. For the only thing that can conquer it is love. Think of the first king of the nation of Israel called Saul. Saul had a son, Jonathan, According to the natural line of succession, whenever Saul would have been taken off the throne, it would have been Jonathan who would have inherited that throne in Israel, and he would sit therefore on the throne of the nation. But along comes this ruddy-faced shepherd singer by the name of David. Maybe I'm underestimating his CD, CV there. I should be saying that he's, he's also a lion tamer. He's a giant killer. He's handsome. He's articulate. He's supremely blessed in realms of poetry and music and other areas. One person that has all of those talents compressed into his body will quickly become a very unpopular person. And that's how King Saul reacted to him. Saul hated David. Not because he had slain Goliath. That was good for the nation. That was good for him. Not because he delivered him, therefore, from the immediate threat of the Philistine hordes. But he hated David because of David's wide-ranging abilities that Saul imagined would transform him into a real threat to his throne. And so in a fit of pique one day, Saul scrambled to grab his javelin, threw it at David with the intention of killing him and wiping out this potential threat. We have few details about Jonathan. He was, we know, at least fairly adept with the use of a bow and an arrow and with a sword. Brave man, consummate soldier, but we don't know much more. Musical ability? Bible draws a blank. It's away with words, another blank. But the Bible does make an important note about his character. Jonathan never looked at David in the way that his father Saul did, through the lens of jealousy, even though Jonathan is in line to the throne, and David now has emerged as God's choice for the position of the monarch of the kingdom. In 1 Samuel 20, the verse 17, we have this recorded of Jonathan, and Jonathan loved him as he loved his own soul. That's not as some twisted people would have it. A perverse kind of affection. But that's what you get between soldiers who are heroes in their own right and leaders of men who have this intense respect and affection for each other. But what made the difference between Saul and Jonathan in their reaction to David? Love did. Saul was jealous, but Jonathan loved David, and love cannot be jealous. Real love 
will rejoice in the excellence of others, in the gifts of others, in the success of others. Real love has no room for jealousy. Instead of envying, true love will rejoice in the blessings that others are given. And when I look at Jesus Christ, I see a total absence of jealousy. He said in John 8 and verse 50, I seek not mine own glory, and instead what he was seeking was to glorify the Father. John 17 and 4, in Matthew 20, the verse 28, he says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Love suffers long. Love is kind. Love is never jealous. What are we like in comparison to this? How are we coping with this portrait? There are 12 further features of love to consider. We're only at the beginning here of this portrait of love, and I'm going to finish today with the fourth feature. Love is not proud. 1 Corinthians 13 and 4 again, charity suffereth long in this kind, charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Vaunteth not itself. And then we read, is not puffed up. Well, is that two phrases both saying the same thing? Well, actually it isn't, because the first statement here, charity vaunteth not itself, it's pointing us to pride speaking talking highly of itself. The second statement, charity is not puffed up, is the attitude of the spirit of pride, the conceit that is deep down inside that in time will give expression to itself by action or by speech. The Greek word here that tells us that love is not vaunting itself, in other words, is not boastful. Would you believe it? It comes from a root word that means windbag. Being boastful, vaunting itself, is, in other words, acting the windbag, the hot air that comes out of the mouth of a proud and conceited person who's looking down at those around them. This word doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament, only appears here. And it's saying here, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, writing to us, love is not a windbag. Love is not shooting off its mouth about its own accomplishments. Love doesn't speak the lines of arrogant chatter that is designed to make me look better than you. Bragging is an effort to make other people feel inferior because of what you are and what you have. Bragging is the flip side of envy. So Paul here in his fourth verse in 1 Corinthians 13 is saying, love does not envy, and then he turns it around, flips it over. Love does not brag or vaunt itself. Envy is wanting something that other people have. Bragging is making people want what you have. You know how it works. Somebody's telling a story. 
tremendous story about something that has been accomplished. And there you are, and you're only half listening, and you're really getting ready to burst here because you want to break in in the middle of that conversation. They're exalting that person too much for your liking, and you're dying for them to stop so that you can chip in. Well, if you think that's something to talk about, let me tell you what I did. And quite possibly, when you have said your piece, somebody else beside you, there's always another one, finds a bigger horn to blow, to brag about themselves. The whole idea of bragging is to batter somebody else down like a peg into the ground and make yourself the hammer that does it, superior to the peg. These Corinthians were a sad collection of spiritual show-offs. They were constantly vying for attention. Make room for me. Look at my gifts and the wonderful exercise of the gifts that I have. And it becomes obvious, reading the epistle here, that the Corinthian church services were chaos. Everybody speaking at the same time. We have references to that, do we not, in the book. And they're all caught up in this scramble for influence. In the entire Corinthians letter, there is no mention of an elder. It seems to have been a church operating without recognized leadership. And so everybody is pushing himself or pushing herself forward. Everybody wants to hit the top of the pile. And we look through a little peephole in 1 Corinthians 14 and 26 as to what their meetings were like. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together? Every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation, complete chaos. The place was chock full of spiritual show-offs, everybody wanting to do their own thing. The result, bragging, bragging, more bragging. Boasting is calibrated to hurt other people, to make you stand out, make them shrink and disappear. We all have at least one thing that we can do to a fairly high standard. And maybe we're tempted to let a few other people know about it. But boasting is nothing more than self-centeredness, the desire to provoke others to envy. And it's a sin, not only because it's the wrong thing to do, but because it makes others sin as well. The sin of jealousy, boasting, makes your brother stumble. That is not the action of love. Love does not brag, that's what we're told here, does not blow its own horn. Love says, let me put my arm around you. Let me make you feel better. I want to take on the role of my Savior who was a servant, who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And look at the example the Lord Jesus left. We never find him bragging. He had everything to brag about. But he didn't do it. I think of the Gospel of John. Make your way through that and mark the many times. I said to a challenge, mark the many times where our Lord Jesus Christ was given the opportunity to boast, but he never once took it. 
In John 12 and verse 49, he says, For I have not spoken of myself. Hold on a minute. Just stop right there. How many of us can say that? For I have not spoken of myself. How many of us, when we come to the end of another day, can honestly look over that day, scan it, and say, Lord, I've not promoted myself today. I've not spoken about myself today. Only love can save us from flaunting our knowledge, flaunting our gifts, flaunting our abilities, flaunting our education, pushing ourselves. How do we answer this? The antidote to boasting is humility. Humility is anchored to an understanding of God's greatness and therefore correspondingly realizes our own weakness. We are getting the real picture that He is God, that we are His creation. Or as somebody says, we remember He is God and we are not. The book of Romans tells us not to be thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Romans 12 and 3. Now, Paul doesn't say you need to diminish your abilities. You need to stop exercising your abilities. You need not to be experiencing the breadth of your gifts and talents that God has given you. What you should be doing is saying, Lord, I recognize every single gift and ability and talent, whatever has come from above, is thine. I'm just letting it express thy greatness not mine, just giving a vent for it in a human vessel of clay. Jonathan Edwards wrote a tremendous book, and he knew all about revival in Northamptonshire and New England, and he tells us what humility actually looks like. The humble person, we'll just list them here, acknowledges their sinfulness and their need of God's grace. The humble person recognizes and celebrates the giftedness of others. The humble person gives God the glory for the blessings of life. The humble person feels no competition with others. The humble person honestly appraises their own gifts and abilities. They know their limitations. The humble person refuses to make excuses for failures. And the humble person does not need to be always right. That humble person never thinks his humility is great because he has a proper grasp of the cause of humility, and that grasp is this. I am but clay, broken, marred vessel, and only God can do anything useful with me. And only he can make me a blessing at any time to somebody else because I am nothing. He is everything. The humble person is usually soft and approachable, and somebody really you would like being around, because they have a strong awareness of the mercy of God, and what they want to do in their lives is let that mercy be extended to others. So the portrait, to be like Jesus, are we poor copies? Are we faded copies in comparison with the original? 
are we but dead copies? You know, you come to the printer and the printer's low in toner, and the warning lights are there, and you're looking to print out a bright masterpiece, but it's a faded picture that comes out, sometimes almost indiscernible. What comes out? You're so disappointed. Lord, if that's the copy, I am of you. Make the colors more colorful, more definite, more pronounced, more vivid. Make me more like Christ. That's what Paul is teaching us here. 